This episode is being recorded out of Shop Talk Podcast Studio in Oak Park, Michigan. For more information, visit shoptalkpodcaststudio.com. Oh, welcome back. Episode 270, Shop Talk Podcast. Special episode this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but shout out to you guys for tuning in for 270 consistent weeks. Couldn't do it without you. Well, actually, I would probably still do it without you, but... The feeling is, you know, you know, you know, it's like family there. Yeah. How, how was your week, brother? Week was cool, man. This rain is killing me. Man. This rain is killing me. I got a little leak in my ceiling. Uh oh. So, I mean, I got a little leak in the roof. So, I, you know, my ceiling is taking a beating. Man, I was, I was, I was worried this week because I know I told y'all a tree fell on my house, uh, but there was no major damage. But like with another consistent week of rain, um, I was worried. I didn't want to see no leaks, no leaks, but you know, this water is We're just recovering from my grass needed it like real bad. I got a I got a nasty patch up front. Man, it's been raining since May. No, we we're not getting no summer this year. He <laughs> <laughs> was like summer's getting skipped. <laughs> Memorial year. Day is about to be here in short. Yeah, or whatever. Kids be back in school in a minute. Yeah. That's what it feel like. But listen, man, we said it was a special episode because um, you know, this week we have uh probably our most decorated guests. Um, we have a, 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 a young man who's running for the mayor of our great city of Detroit. I was waiting on this because I got I got a lot of concerns as a <laughs> lifelong Detroiter, taxpaying citizen of Detroit, okay. DPS graduate. You know, I love my city. Right. I love my city. And it's got it's got some concerns there for me. Okay. Absolutely. But we do have the. Uh, the former deputy mayor of the city of Detroit, um, executive assistant to Mayor Coleman Young, um, someone who was elected um, the DPS Board of Education, um, DPS Board President, Interim Director of the Water and Sewage Department, General Counsel for Detroit uh, Public Schools, also an entrepreneur, um, a business owner, and a real deal lawyer. We have Anthony Adams. A lot, lot of titles there. A lot of, a lot of titles. Thank a lot you for of, coming through. A lot of work, a lot of experience. Uh, absolutely. And I'm certainly happy that you've had me on your show so we can really chop it up and dig in some of these issues and concerns about the future of the city of Detroit. Mm. Okay. We're glad to have you, man. Absolutely. Um, so a couple, I don't know, a couple months ago, um, I, I saw you on Instagram or the socials uh, running for Detroit and uh, all biases on the table. Whenever I see somebody black running for office, I pay attention. Okay. Um, especially in the city of Detroit, right? <laughs> um, and I, I, I'm ready for new leadership in the city. So I said, let me take a look um, at this gentleman. And um, I've been looking, I've been watching. And uh, recently somebody tagged you in a post like, I want to see him on y'all show. I'm like, well, I want to see him on here too. <laughs> right, yeah, so right. we, we just reach out and we appreciate you. You reach it back and coming coming by just to give us give us a little bit of your time and you know, for us to be able to address some of our concerns and, and you let us know, you know, what your plans are for the city in the future. Great. Well, I think the the best way to know me is to talk to me and really understand, you know, how I think, how I approach problem solvings and sort of show the depth of my experience and knowledge about how we can really transform our city. We talk a lot about transformational change and people say, oh, you're going to pay for it. Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that today and really get into the nitty gritty of how we become much more responsible and responsive to our own needs. Mm. Okay. So before we jump into, you know, the policies and things of that nature, let's just get the, our, our audience more introduced with you. Uh, so from my understanding, 
grew up, born and raised in Cincinnati. Is that Cincinnati, right? Ohio, uh, born and raised. Uh, went to uh, public schools in Cincinnati. Um, product of a, of a single mother. My parents actually got divorced when I was real young. Mm-hmm. And my mother was one of the hardest working uh, women I've ever known in my entire life. Um, I'm a mama's boy. I make no bones about it. Okay. Uh, she poured everything within me. Uh, dedicated public servant. Worked 47 years uh, for the city of Cincinnati. Started off as a clerk type is three. The lowest position that you could have in the city of Detroit. And when she retired after 47 years, she was a registrar for the city of Cincinnati, which is the highest position that a non-college educated person should have. Totally dedicated to the Urban League, NAACP, volunteer organizations, you name it. My mother did it all. So you come from good stock. I come from a, a <laughs> woman who just believes that you need to be about the business of helping people. Mm. You need to be a public servant. Uh, you need so to she serve. planted that seed young. She really did, man. I mean, it was just a question of how much you have to give. And with her, it was always you need to give more. You need to take your talents. You need to use your skills in a manner that's going to help and benefit people. So I consider myself not a politician, mm-hmm. but a public servant. I think there's a huge difference uh, between what those two roles stand for. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so prior to coming to the city to try to understand, you went to Georgetown. I went to first I graduated from University of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like Wayne State, I was a commuter kid, walked to college from my house, uh, ur- managed in urban management, urban planning, always wanted to be involved in city government, wanted to really be what they call a professional city manager. They had a program at University of Cincinnati that allowed you to really understand the nuts and bolts of how a city operates. After I graduated from UC with honors, I might add, I'm right. <laughs> college standard bearer. Academics excellence is very, very important. I then went to Georgetown um, University Law Center in Washington, D.C., um, which was a phenomenal experience. I mean, I had a chance to work in the Department of Justice Tax Division, the main headquarters that you see on on Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm. Worked at the Securities Exchange Commission. I worked at two big law firms, did a lot of tax and antitrust work. And also did, you know, a lot, a lot of volunteer work in the community. This was a time when Marion Barry actually was first elected fully empowered mayor for the city of, of Washington, D.C. It was just a great time, great experience. Uh, Mary- I have family out in D.C., and okay. I don't think— and, and I remember being a young man when Marion Barry was just becoming mayor, and I don't think people understand how— how enthused he had the city oh, at that time. Like it was electric. He's a big personality. It was, it was the chocolate city. If we recall, I absolutely see in Detroit there there's so many parallels in the leadership, in the dynamics, the demographics of the city, the transformation that the city of Washington DC has gone through now and the transformation with what's happening in the city of Detroit how the city of Washington, D.C. was gentrified mm. and the people were forced out of their own communities, out of their own yeah. city, and now they live in Maryland and Virginia and other places. But it was a time when there was a serious black empowerment. Marion yes. Barry did not allow a, 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 a ant to move unless there was some type of partnership or collective economics 
uh, with black businessmen and black people in the city, which is why he was able to be reelected after he served his stint in prison, uh, after being set up, quite frankly, smoking crack on TV. And yet wow. the people understood that he was vested in them. Mm-hmm. He yeah. believed in them and they supported him through thick and thin. And that's the kind of emotional connection that I'm trying to really gauge with the people who live in the city because this city, they have to feel you. If they don't really feel you, you're not going too far. Yeah. So I've got to convey my energy, my enthusiasm, and my strong belief in the people of this city that we can do great things together. Okay. So after UC, after Georgetown, right. you go to, to I, DC, I, you, you, you're working for the SEC. You yeah, know, you're doing I, did some, some, <laughs> I did some stuff there. So around <laughs> what time frame? How old were you and around what okay, time frame? Okay, so this it? was uh, a 1981. I graduated from law school. Okay. I then came to Detroit. I was, at the time, I was married to a lady who was from Detroit. I was a law clerk to a federal judge, Anna Dix Taylor. She was the first black woman to serve on the federal bench in, in Michigan. Mm. Uh, she was a Jimmy Carter appointee, actually, I believe. I actually was her first male law clerk. She had all women working in her office. So okay. you're in the history book. I'm, I'm in the history <laughs> book. And, and she was a dynamic, strong woman, just brilliant. I mean, she went, her parents taught at Howard University, so she had the black college experience. Um, she actually went to law school at Yale. I mean, just an outstanding lawyer, brilliant writer, and strong and tough as nails. I recall a case one time where a white lawyer from a very prominent firm was very disappointed in how she was ruling in this case. And he literally said, I don't understand why that B won't rule in my favor. Um, well, I'm sitting back and I'm ready like, to, to turn the table over. And she's like, she gave me the little look like, no, nope, don't, we don't do it that way. We're going to be real smooth about this. And what she told me was that even though the law was on his side, she said, I want you to write me an opinion which disputes what he wants to do. I don't care if I get reversed because I'm not going to allow him to disrespect me Mm. in my own course. So that taught me that sometimes you got to take up a stand on, on principle, even in regards to what the consequences might be. After I worked with her, I then joined the law firm. I was a, a, I was a young associate in litigation. And actually, because I had federal clerkship experience, I got a chance to, to be involved in a lot of high-profile cases. The uh-huh. highest-profile case I was involved in was uh, Billy Sims and the Detroit Lions versus the Houston Argonauts. If you recall, this was when the USFL Football League had started, and they were, they were poaching players from the NFL. Billy Sims' lawyer, a guy by the name of Dr. Jerry Argibus, actually was an owner of a USFL team. He signed Billy to a contract at that time in 1984, I think it was for a million dollars a year, which sounds like a lot of money. And it probably was back, back then. Back in 84, yeah. Yeah, nothing. for sure. I'll take the meal right now. So, <laughs> so what, what Billy found out, though, was that his white agent, also represented the quarterback on the team, a guy by the name of Jim Kelly, <laughs> who ultimately went on to play for the Buffalo, Buffalo Bills. Bills yeah. The contract he signed for Bill Kelly was a was a contract that had an escalator provision in it, meaning that Bill the Kelly would Jim Kelly, that Jim Kelly would be the always be in the top three highest paid quarterbacks in the USFL mm. without any negotiations. When Billy found out that he cut a better deal for Jim Kelly than himself, he came back to the Lions. He wanted to void the contract. Our firm was retained to represent him and, and push that case through. Uh, Alwood Hatchett was an attorney out of, out of Pontiac, a very prominent black attorney who we got a chance to work with. So that was a very, very, very fun case in working with that. 
after I did that for about two years, I got a. Um, I heard about uh, Mayor Coleman Young actually wanting some young lawyer type people to work on his administration. And so I wasn't really connected because, you know, in those days, everybody was connected to Coleman. Had to know somebody. Yeah, yeah. family, relatives, worked at the plant, UAW. I mean, there was a connection yeah. everywhere. So I said, well, I'll send my resume in. You know, I think I'm a pretty talented guy. I send my resume in, and I don't hear anything for like three or four months. And then I get to the office one day, and they said, you got a call from the mayor's office. I said, Mayor who? <laughs> yeah, mayor Young's office called. He wants you to come over for an appointment. I said, when? He said, well, I think they want you to do it this afternoon. I said, okay. I go over, and I meet the guy, and I'm just like totally awestruck because here is a living legend. The Larger than life personality. Oh, my God. Just he's sitting back. He's cool. He's got that kind of, you know, voice. Like, yeah, why you want to work? I mean, it was just, it was just a phenomenal experience and talking with him. But I never thought I'd actually would get the job. And maybe like three months later, they called me up and said, well, you ready to start working for the mayor? And I was like, wow. I'm, mm. At this point, I'm 27 years old. I'm a young guy. I've gone to law school, got my degree, uh, clerked for a federal judge, uh, worked in a law firm. I'm now working uh, in City Hall for Coleman Young. And being a young executive assistant at that time was a tough environment because it wasn't a friendly place because people were all about trying to make sure that their connection with Coleman was as strong as possible. Yeah, yeah. And they weren't necessarily trying to let no young buck and get yeah. in get in the mix there. So I, performing. Yeah, so yeah. I had to I had to I had to earn my stripes. And, you know, I I got my butt whipped a lot. But I started working in economic development. And so when you talk about the People Mover Project, worked on that project in its infancy. When you talk about the original Cobo Hall expansion, probably the greatest political feat ever known to man, where Coleman Young was able to impose a region-wide hotel-motel tax on suburban communities in order to fund the development of Cobo Hall has never been duplicated. Mm. No one has ever been able to do that again. Greatest political feat ever through a master politician. You talk about the major expansion, the first expansion of Chrysler Jefferson Project. Worked on that. You talk about the development of uh, single-family housing in the city of Detroit, in Clare Point, uh, which was a uh, Victoria Park, which was a uh, east side single family housing subdivision built uh, with in conjunction with uh, the Builders Association of Southeastern Michigan. You talk about uh, restoring commercial airline service uh, to Detroit City Airport with Southwest Airlines. There wasn't one major project that occurred in the city of Detroit that I had not worked on. And so that gave me a, just a total breadth of understanding of how this city works, how you put these deals together? What's the philosophy behind partnering and bringing people to the table, making sure that black folks were a part of the contracting process? All this was enmeshed in my mind and gave me, I think, a very strong foundation. So I did that for six years. Work with the mayor's office? With the mayor's years? office okay. for six years. So question. So mm-hmm. we kind of touched on Marion Barry and how right. he kind of captivated and how he had things. So you got the chance to see that. Yeah. It's another captivating personality. And then you get a chance Coleman. to see Coleman Young. Yeah. Like what kind of experience? Like, cause those are two, the two, two giants. Yeah. Um, you know, Marion was, was a brilliant guy. Let's just start there. I mean, guy was like a PhD in chemistry, um, mm. really connected, uh, total, a total community person. Uh, Coleman's background was so much different. I mean, he's a guy who had, you know, came up in life, 
uh, was in the Army, Tuskegee Airmen, always been a, a rebel, uh, always been on the cutting edge of fighting social justice issues, went through a period of time where, you know, he was just another guy on the street and then got back involved in politics, uh, won a state senatorship, helped write the Constitution for the state of Michigan at the Con-Con Convention in 1961, laid the foundation for black empowerment, working with labor unions, the the the, the black labor people uh, who were in the UAW at that time was able to cultivate that relationship. And so people understood who Coleman was. They were connected with him because they seen him go up through life. They knew who he was. There was never any question about where he stood. And the same was true with Marion Barry. Even though Marion wasn't from D.C., uh, he had spent a lot of time there, you know, and made his bones in the community involvement and engagement, uh, starting programs for empowering young black men. These people understood what it took to make a community strong, to bring people together, and to have one singular purpose, which to make sure that black folks was at the table and that we were respected. Understanding that you have to do business with the white power structure, but understanding that you know where your bread is buttered, you gotta make sure that your community your people is taken are care of. Yeah. Exactly. So that was there was two great men uh, that I had the opportunity to observe because I actually one thing I didn't tell you was that I actually did a stint in working for DC city government. Mm. Um, I was in fact this was when I was in college. One reason why I went back to DC was a lot of my friends that gotten jobs with the Jimmy Carter administration. <laughs> That's a blast from the past. And they told me, man, you need to come to D.C. And, and enjoy this D.C. life. And so I had a job in D.C. city government where Marion Barry actually was a council person. So I got a chance to also see him from the legislative side and then see him on the executive side. Okay, okay. So there was two things that stuck out to me or had a connection with me um, from your bio. Um it was the elected Detroit Public School Board of Education member and DPS board president because two of my aunts um, were DPS uh, teachers, okay. retired okay. Um, from DPS teacher uh, from from DPS schools. Right. And the other one was the interim director of Detroit Water and Sewage. Yeah. My father um, worked there for 38 years until oh, his retirement. Okay. So, Which department was he in? Uh, he was in, so he, he started, <laughs> he started like he was like 19. Okay. So he, okay. he went through a lot of different things. Okay. He was going from door to door doing water meters. Yeah. No, he actually started like in the sewers and doing yeah. those and doing the water meters. Then he was a plant mechanic. Okay. He, he worked his way up. And yeah. that was, that was a, that was a traditional path. Um, DPS experience was, was phenomenal. Obviously, um, my kids all went to DPS schools, graduated from DPS schools. They did the go lightly mm-hmm. renaissance track. Okay. I believed, uh, in, in, in public education and the strength of the district, which at one time you could go to any school. Whether you went to McKinsey, whether you went to Northwestern, whether you went to Cooley, whether you went to Denby, you could get a good, solid education. They had programs for trades and skills. People could actually learn things while going to high school and yet get a good, solid education if they wanted to go to college. That was the greatness of the system. The music program created created some of the greatest musicians of all time. All you need to do is listen to Motown. Mm -hmm. Now, Practically 90% of the musicians from Motown came out of Detroit Public Schools, so the system was great. I believed in it wholeheartedly. My first experience, obviously, was at General Counsel. Uh, I, I came there because they needed someone who had experience in economic development, who also was a good lawyer. I'm not going to pat myself on the back. 
who kind of understood the way his way around town, having operated in a lot of different spheres. And so it was a very, very fulfilling experience because my kids were in DPS. I got a chance to see them whenever I wanted to and participate in the graduation ceremonies and just work to make the district great. The other side of my experience as being general counsel is they also had me run their federal title program. The federal title money, which talked about how you educate homeless children, how you provide disability services also. So I worked in both aspects, both the legal aspect as well as chief compliance uh, office in the district. And that was a great experience. But I used that experience, obviously, to, to become at one time president of the Detroit Board of Education. This was during a time when they had emergency management. The emergency manager by the name of Robert Bob, mm-hmm. his nickname was yeah. Bob Bob. Yeah, well, and it that. was a battle because Robert Bob, who was brought here by Jennifer Granholm, and we can get onto some of the dynamics of the Democratic Party and how they play plantation politics with black folks in the city of Detroit. Oh, we gonna, we definitely yeah. gonna talk. Oh, we yeah. got some. Oh, we yeah. got some strong feelings. Uh, about we love that. it. I, that's, I'm, I'm, that's why I'm glad I'm here. Um, there was, there was the, the state law was very clear that the board had authority over academics and Bob, Bob thought that he controlled everything and he was highly disrespectful, uh, to the elected board. He was highly disrespectful to a lot of the people who had worked in the district. We talking about solid educators and principals and assistant principals and, and office people who had worked years to create and keep a solid district. He came in, just totally disrespected everybody. Mm. So we got involved in a major legal battle with him. Uh, the judge was Wendy Baxter, Wayne County Circuit Court judge, where we sued Robert Bob to challenge his authority about emergency management over academics. After a six-week trial, we won the case. He wrote a, a, a phenomenal decision saying that the board had power. He runs to Lansing along with Jennifer Granholm, and they get the law changed with the Republican legislature, I might add. So they play games when it's in their interest to control what they want to control, mm. but when the things that we want to control, people just need to make mental notes of how we get played when it's not the result that they yeah. want. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a reason why I went through your bio this way. Um, because we're going to touch on a couple of different topics. And I just want our audience to know that you're speaking from the position of a subject matter expert um, because of things that you've done. Um, well, we could talk about I mean, the water in the water department, <laughs> running the water department was 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 uh, I, it was it was a job that I really, really enjoyed. Let me say that. Because I love infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I love understanding how our system operates. Because when you're planning infrastructure, you're not planning by years. You're taking 50-year increments in how you create the system. And I think we were on the path to doing some really creative things. For example, what people don't know is that we actually were in negotiations with the city of Flint to actually take control of their water system. Because we understood that in order for our system to grow, we needed to push our service lines past the city of Flint. Because the way the city of Detroit system operated at that time, we controlled everything really up to the city of Flint in order to expand the system and create much more uh, customer base in order to strengthen the system. We were negotiating with the city of Flint to take control of their system. And I remember talking with the engineers in the department about the Flint River Mm -hmm. and was told that you never want to draw water out of the Flint River, which was why the city of Flint was always trying to get the city of Detroit to give them access to their water intake valves up at Port Huron because the city of Detroit, I don't want to get too technical, 
but they had two absolute, they had two water lines to draw water out of Port Huron, but they only used one. The other one was a redundancy because you always want redundancy in your water system. If you have one, you have none. And so they wanted to use our other line. We would never let them do that. We would use that as leverage to really try to take control of their system and move our water line forward. We'd also develop uh, what they call a um, uh, the Flint lo- Loop. In order to have redundancy in your water system, you also want to make sure that you can have, if, if something happens with our intake valves at the, at the Detroit River, you always want to be able to draw and then pump water from any other source, which would be lake, you know, lakes, lakes up there. And we were working and had developed a plan to create a complete looping system which would have allowed us to, in any situation to draw on water from wherever we need to get water in order to keep and maintain our system. The final thing, obviously, was the issue of how you handle stormwater management in the city. And part of the reason that the suburbs wanted control of the system is because this was the only department that could actually impose fees and costs on suburban communities, mm. and they always hated that. And so when I was running the system, they kept trying to negotiate with the city for us to transfer control, give them authority, allow them to appoint their own commissioners to the Board of Water Commission. And we said we would not do that because the system was built by the people who live in the city. And why would we give you what we have built? Now, we said, now, unless you prepare to give us $100 million a year, uh, in, in, in fees to allow us to use this money in the general Leasing, fund essentially. because yeah. what happens is the way the wow. money that comes into that system has to stay in the system. It can't get pulled out of the system. Well, we were the only utility in the, in the state that couldn't draw money out of our utility system to help fund our general fund obligations. And we had worked on some pretty creative programming where we could have borrowed a billion dollars for education funds for a business opportunity grant to really help stabilize the city of Detroit as well as deal with this financial issues at that time. But obviously with Kilpatrick's problems and the weight of the world coming down on us, they took control, uh, took him out. And obviously the rest is history because what it did was it created a cascading effect on disrespecting the black leadership, mm. uh, failure of black leadership, and people being disappointed in what occurred. So which set the stage for a white guy from Livonia who had a history of playing plantation politics in Wayne County because anybody who's familiar with what happens in Wayne County back in those days understood that the McNamara machine was all about control of everything. And they cut deals with black folks when they had to but they weren't necessarily the most friendly people. So this guy is able to reinvent himself coincidentally with the help of Jennifer Granholm, who, when she was governor, negotiated a deal for him to become head of the Detroit Medical Center. I remember that. Put him in place and allowed him to reinvent himself uh, to become the great white hope. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I remember I remember all of that placement and, and the facelift that the DMC kind of kind of went over, kind of went into at that time. Now, now before we touch on it, explain to us what, what plantation politics is. Plantation politics is is a system of control by which an overseer or a master doles out benefits to keep people uh, in their place. Uh, It is not a real seat at the table, but it's a control relationship based on economic benefits that people actually receive. Mm. And so what we see happening in our own community is that oftentimes our leaders and our voices 
who should be speaking up on issues become silent. And they become silent because they're almost complicit uh, in the control of the community for the benefits that they are receiving, which oftentimes are at odds with the needs of the people in the community. That's what I mean by plantation politics. It's a very, it's a very dangerous concept to even allow to be embedded in your community. But if you're talking about self-empowerment, self-fulfillment, everything needs to be questioned. All relationships need to be examined. Why have people taken positions that are contrary to what we will believe to be in the best interest of the people who live in the city? That's what I mean by plantation politics. Okay. Now, you had touched on something just in just in your conversation, talking about the school board. Yes. Like, you could go anywhere and get a quality education. Right. I, I'm a father of DPS students. My oldest son just graduated from Renaissance. Okay. All got right. another one in Renaissance. You know, I got... One going in a one going in a charter school in the city, okay. and then I have my daughter. She's in elementary school in the city at Cook Elementary. Okay. So I mean, I've and I'm Rose a D, I'm a DPS, yeah, and I'm yeah. a DPS graduate myself. Came out of Cass. Me and Jay. Okay. Both went to uh, DPS. So the education here in the city is 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 important to me. You know, my mother was a teacher here. My grandmother, and I had the opportunity. Uh, back in high school, I, I spent a lot of time at school board meetings because okay. my mother wanted me to see the experience and what really went on. <laughs> and it was some wild times back yeah. in the late 90s. It was a wild time. Yeah, yeah, I saw, you know, things that you would not expect in that type of setting. You know, they, they took place. But that's one thing that's really important to me because I really believe in public education. I'm a product of it. And I would love for my children to continue. I still have – I got a, a younger son that's four so not school age yet, but it's yeah. my desire. His mother is a Oak, his mother is a Oakland County resident. Okay, and you know she's touting. You know my baby gonna go to Oakland County schools, but I said I you know me and her are both product of DPS. They did us right, right. And I would prefer for my son to have that same same type of experience. But like you said, now there's so much disparity. Yeah. in the schools, you know, outside of the Cass King Renaissance. You know, you you have some go lightly though those specific schools, but outside of there, there's a lot of disparity in the quality of education that these children are receiving. There is, and I mean, there's, there needs to be a major overhaul of how we actually address education in the city of Detroit because the city of Detroit education um, has been decimated. I'm gonna say by the really the advent of charter schools because what happened when in the early really in the in the, in the early 2000s. When the charter movement first really began to take shape, remember the D DPS actually was the leading system in having charters, Afro-centered uh, American charter schools, whether it was um, um, Malcolm X Academy, Malcolm X Academy, some of the other schools. I mean, they, they actually were the lead for how you educate in a progressive manner African-American children. Well, obviously, then the whole charter movement, which was co-opted and run by, uh, by the Voss uh, and Engler group, they got, their trend, they got their they got their feet hold in the city. And what they did was in order to have a system that provides a quality education, you have to have children in, in K through eight because it takes much less to educate a child and from kindergarten through eighth grade than it does from ninth through twelfth. And so by sucking off the kids in the younger grades, they really begin to draw money and resources away from the district, which then required the district to begin to dramatically downsize itself. And so now we're at a point where we have actually more kids in charter schools than we actually have in Detroit uh, public education. Yep. But there is very little accountability on the charter system in the city because the city has no authority over them. 
because of how state law is structured to appoint boards for charter schools. I believe that the law needs to be changed to require that local leadership be appointed to run these boards versus having a lot of suburban people who might be well-intentioned, but they're not in the community. We also have to deal with the issue of the disparity in funding and education for the public schools. The fact of the matter is they recently got a bump through the American Recovery Act dollars in order to commit more money to it, but the funding streams are, are, are inequitable. When you have a district in West Bloomfield or Birmingham, which is able to spend $14,000, $15,000 per kid, mm. and the city of Detroit is still at $7,800 per kid. So you got a huge disparity in income, and you also have a huge disparity in resources. And what we've done is we've lost so many great educators in the system over time because they've been forced out over emergency management, 20 years of emergency management a diminution of value of public education in the city, and, and the lack of really support from the community. And so part of being an effective mayor is understanding that that dynamic has got to change. We've got to be engaged in making sure that every child in every school in every district gets a good education. So how do we, how do we circumvent that funding? Because something that was you know, for me, luckily, I'm I'm in a position where my, you know, the lights are on, the kids are doing all right. Yeah. But like with them being home, especially this year with this virtual learning, <laughs> I saw so yeah. many disparities, oh my God. you know, in in how the kids are taught classroom management. And then like these babies, you know, they come into school. I, I know you can't change everybody's situation because these children are coming to school with adult problems. Summertime. You know, not eating, not clothes not clean they they're dealing with the litany of things but i feel like when they get to school the playing field should be a little bit more even and and that's that's something that i worry about because you know for me i i can do yeah. but i know some of their peers you know they they don't have the same experience out outside of the classroom and being that this year we were all outside yeah, of the classroom essentially. Well, we certainly we certainly clearly understand now the the, the lack of a digital uh, access uh, in our community. You know the fact that it took DPS almost five months to figure out the kids didn't have access to computers and really needed to close that digital divide, which is why uh, through our church Triumph Church, you know we stepped up way before the district even recognized it was an issue and began passing out digital devices uh, to the community so because we understood that the kids were going to get hurt, and they have been hurt, which is why we really need to be talking about year-round schooling in order to for them to catch up. We also understand that in order to address these issues, our children are coming to school traumatized, and it's a public health issue because if we don't begin to get a good handle on educating our children and providing them with the support services that they need. I'm talking about social work services. I'm talking about psychological help, psychiatric assistance. We've got to provide the wraparound services not only to the children but to the parents as well. I fundamentally believe that every every parent wants the best for their child. I recall a story one time when I was general counsel. I had a a principal that kept calling me. She said, "This, this mama come to school every day drunk with her daughter, I'm sick of it. You gotta get. It. You gotta stop her from coming in the building. So I said, "Well, I don't know if I can stop her from coming in the building. I mean, is she is she causing a disturbance? Is she? No, she just comes to school drunk every day. So I said, well, you know, I gotta see this for myself. I was a very hands-on general counsel. I probably visited maybe 250 schools. 
uh, during the course of a three-year period when I was general counsel because I believe that you got to get out the office and see, you what's see what's going on. on. You got to touch it sometimes. So, so I get out, I get in my car one morning, I, I get to the building. I think it was a school over on the east side somewhere. And I'm parked there, and sure enough, at the appointed time, I see this mother, you know, walking her daughter, and, and she appeared to be drunk. So I went to the building, and I told the principal, I said, look, I know you got a lot on your plate. And dealing with a parent that's drunk certainly isn't one of them. I said, but let's understand this. There are a lot of parents who don't drunk, who not drunk, ain't bringing their kids to school at all. Now, the fact that she's drunk, whatever her state is, whatever she's dealing with, she has enough gumption to bring her daughter to school. I think that's a parent we can work with. Maybe you should invite her in when they say, hey, mama, look, I know you're going through a lot, but it would really help us to help your daughter if you did not bring her to school drunk. Just try it. I mean, what do you got to lose? The principal looked at me. She's like, you know how much work I got to do, but I'm going to try it. And and sure enough, she talked to the parent. The parent got her act together, you know, started to volunteer in the school. It was a good result for that child, for that principal to understand that every kid, every parent wants the best for the child. We just got to figure out how we get it to them. And so when we have children with issues, how do I help you? Which is why... We should be talking about transitional housing programs and all these vacant schools that we have in the city. Why are we not providing housing services for children who live in traumatized environments? I was speaking at Rosa Sharon Church um, uh, maybe a year ago, and we were talking with the young kids, and a young lady wrote a note. She says, my home situation is whack. (laughs) I see stuff in my house that I shouldn't be seeing. How do you help me? And I didn't have an answer for it. Because she understood at 13, 14 that what she was seeing in her house was something that she didn't, she didn't want to be a part of. But there was no opportunity to transition her from her house to allow her to put her, put her in an environment that would be safe, that would allow her to learn and to grow. And these are the kind of programs when you're talking about how you transform a city. These are the kind of things we need to talk about and we got to be focused on. That's that's a good that you mentioned that because you, you mentioned there was a school in your old neighborhood Jamison that was vacant. Elementary, the school I went to for, for elementary school, the whole school is on sale for $150,000 right now. Right. I'm on the west side myself, Mary McLeod Bethune oh, yeah. School, empty. Yeah. Cooley is just sitting there, sitting there. collecting mm-hmm. dust. Right. You think about a school, a school take up two whole blocks right. on, on both sides. Right. So you have in, in the city of Detroit, you got two entire blocks. That you can buy for one hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I'm like, well, why don't the city do something with that? Well, there's got to be a commitment. You got to first understand the community. <laughs> you got to understand what the needs are. I was arguing with some people that I said, "Look, I ride a bike. I have no trouble issue with bike lanes. But when you're talking about a bike lane versus providing someone with a safe environment, mm. I got to go with the safe environment because we can deal with the bike lane later. We talk about what we really need in our community and how we get there." You see, because Detroit has been beat up so long, so often, out by the media. Let's understand, the media <laughs> condemned the city of Detroit to death. When Coleman Young took office, they condemned this city to die, and their every waking moment was been about diminishing the value of what Detroit is. And now they, oh, we got to change that. Yeah, we got to change it, but we got to first change the fundamentals of what happens in our city. How do we educate our children? How do we provide safe environments? How do we make sure that our young men at risk have the skills that they need in order to survive? 
We've got more than 160,000 adults in the city of Detroit who have permanently opted out of the workforce. And so when you tell me about a recovery, about things being better, they cannot be better when you have almost a third of your population that is not in the workforce. 60% of the people in the city of Detroit actually receive transfer payments, which means they're getting some from the state, a retirement check, something. So your economics of your population are wacky. $27,000, $28,000 is the average wage of a Detroiter, where it's 60000 in the state of Michigan. And you're telling me we're recovering? We're not recovering. We're receding. That's and we got to address that. that. But that's How a good we- thing that you mentioned, uh, not to cut you off, Jay, in terms of skills. Because I remember, you know, I'm, I'm 39 myself. I remember when I was. You're a young man. <laughs> fairly, fairly. I remember when I was in uh, high school. Right. My, my ex-wife, she she went through Votech, learned, like she learned skills. Right. Skills that she can still maintain today. My daughter's mother, same thing. She learned how to do nails through. And I mean, it it's, it's a skill that she still uses. But now there's there's not a lot. You know, every child is not, is not going to take that path to college and we just have to be realistic about that. Right. But they need to have some type of skill to enter the workforce, even if college is not up your alley. And I don't think that DPS has anything that really offers those type of options right now. Well, there was the big push and the belief that every every child needed to go to college. And as a result of that, they really began to get away from the vocational technical training skills that everybody should have. I mean, when I went to school, which was way, way back in the Middle Ages, it seems like, <laughs> you had shop classes. You learned how to make stuff with your hands. You know how to you, – you could fix a car. You could you learn how to do something else in addition to reading and writing. I mean, my mother made me take typing class. I was like the only guy in the class that my boys would be laughing at me. But, you know, to this day, I'm actually still a pretty good typist. My mother was actually was an excellent typist. You had the skills and training because they understood that you need to be well-rounded. And most kids these days are not well-rounded. It's like the parents who have their kids only play one sport. I am totally against that. Absolutely. You got to play everything. I mean, when we were growing up, you played football, football season, basketball, baseball, yep, you ran absolutely. track. And you, know, you swam. You did everything. No, I, I never understood that just being special. Right. Like, because I, I grew up that same way. Fall, I played football. Right. Wintertime, I played basketball. Spring, right. it, it was, it you, was you, kept yourself, you kept yourself in the thick of something all year long. No, you have to force these kids to come out the house. I was, I was talking with the parent. Which is why I'm always so happy when I pass by a um, a park and I see kids out playing. And I'm really kind of disappointed about what has happened with Powell. Not from the standpoint that they got some good people in leadership over there, but the connection with the football programs and things and what's going on. I just think that's 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 bad for me. Mm. And and when I see that was parents, the lifeblood of the community. It was how people. You know, I I knew when I turned seven or eight, you I was were, playing for the Broncos. Oh, you I knew it. Broncos. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Okay. I, I, I knew that. Play for the Cubs. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I knew that was a progression. Okay, yeah. You. I mean, that, that was. Side? <laughs> that was that was the and, and so what I did was actually my son played for the East Side Raiders. Okay, now, even, so though, even though even though <laughs> even though we lived we lived in Palmer Woods, um, he was the baby, so he kind of you know got got everything. But my ex wife wanted him to play for some suburban. I think it was the Southfield something Rams or somebody like that. I'm like, no, he going to East Side Detroit. She's like, you want me to take about baby? Oh, I look. Ain't no, no boy I'm raised in my house gonna be scared of nobody in the city of Detroit. Mm. 
took him over there and he loved it and developed relationships with, with men from the east side, from the west side, so that when he got in high school, there was no place in the city he couldn't go where he didn't know somebody. There, yeah. was, a, there was a connection that you knew yeah. people, which is why we didn't have a lot of violence because people were connected in one way or another. I might play, you might play for the East Side Raiders, but we might play on the family together in basketball. We were all connected. That's, that's, that was a community. That's 100% true because there have definitely been situations where uh, I may walk into a situation and it may look a little sketchy yeah. um, or a little dangerous. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, that's my man. I play on the same basketball. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, what's and up? then the energy changes, changes and now you can move through this sketchy can, situation. Exactly. Look, my, my, first, my first coach, right. like – I'm, you know, even up until this day, when I run into Mr. Pittman, right, you right. know, it's it's still that relationship is still there. Like exactly. from from the first practice to, you know, now almost thirty years later, right. like it's is and it's still a genuine loving relationship. Man, we were all we were all so connected with one another, and we've lost that connection, which is why we have such endemic violence in our community because no one respects the life of another person. When you don't view a person as a human being, it's very easy to walk up on them. And blast them with a with with a gun because you don't you're not connected but you don't really view them as being human. Mm. And I think part of what I talk about when I talk about you know crime prevention strategy is being much more in, interventional in how we actually address and bring people together in our communities. You know they do a little bit of it. What I'm talking about is a massive amount of it. What do we have to lose? We've spent more than three billion dollars over the last ten years fighting crime in the city of Detroit. And we have crime at epidemic levels. So why not try something else? Why not try to send people off, social workers, gang intervention specialists, uh, community advocates to talk with our young men and women? To say, hey, how do we provide you with, with a pathway in order to improve the quality of your life? And I'm glad you mentioned that because I was reading about you and, and your crime plan. Yes. And to circumvent a little bit more that more funds into uh, mental health and other things of that nature, as opposed to sending out that police presence every time that you have, you know, an issue there. Exactly. And, you know, and I've heard that that's been like a hot button topic lately. Everybody, mental health and like we should handle these things differently. But why is that so important to you? It's, it's important because oftentimes we send police to do jobs that they simply are not trained to do. That's a fact. A, a police officer is not a psychologist. And when they when you call the police, that usually should be your last resort for anything. If a person is a vagrant and they're having that, they're they're messing with someone and going in and out of a store. You see a homeless advocate person who really understands the culture, the community, and how to relate to people, which help in diffusing situations because part of my philosophy and approach is that we have to begin to diffuse and dial down the emotional impact of people engaging with someone who's trying to help them. When you call the police, that's the last resort. And so by sending and people don't see, I don't think people see or view the police as help. They are not. Well, they, 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 they we'll it's, it's more that. of a, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a people need, we need police. Let me just say that I'm not a For defund sure. the police guy. Uh, people, because most of the communities I go to, people trying to figure out why the police didn't come yeah. or why I got to wait. I don't wait five days and they finally show up. So there's, there's a lot, but when you got police responding to homeless situations, 
uh, when they're dealing with mental health issues because most of the runs of the police in the city of Detroit actually are domestic violence type issue, domestic violence issue. And so if we've already identified a pattern because everything is computerized, when the call comes in 911, mm-hmm. there is a database of information that we could mine to figure out, man, we done been called to this house 10 times for domestic violence. That's 10 times the police have had to be dispatched to somewhere. So would it be not in our best interest to have someone go out proactively and say, hey, you know what? We understand you are having issues. And there are a lot of great programs. I was uh, very involved in a program uh, for black fathers who were trying to heal the relationships with their children because we have so many fractured relationships in our community. Oftentimes, the relationship is fractured because the mother is mad at the father for not being with her. And so she puts all that anger in the son so that when the father tries to get involved in his life, there's a whole nother anger issue that they got to break down. So you got a lot of programs like that where people can actually be much more proactive in trying to bring families together that I think can reduce the level of police calls for runs for service that will allow them to then focus on the main things that they need to be focused on, which is violent crimes and criminals in our community. So we got to, um, so to me, there's a prop. This this is a little cycle, and it's an issue, right? So the city has I don't know six hundred thousand people, six hundred fifty thousand, or something like that. Six fifty, six seventy. Um, and in order to increase the city's tax, I mean mm-hmm. tax base, more people have to come back into the city, right? Um. Yeah, I guess you can say that. I, I I'll accept the premise. All right. So just to so yeah, this and on a premise, but some people don't feel safe to come back inside of the city because of the, the, the crime, so to speak, or the police. Um, but we still see crime statistics saying, yo, crime is down 22% this year or this or whatnot. Now see one of your, one of your points is to accurately report crime statistics. So like the, the, the the citizens have faith in the numbers. Transparency is is very, very important, especially as it relates to official information that's coming from city hall. These numbers need to be scrubbed because everybody, there's always a certain level of manipulation that goes into anything. Juking the stats. Are yeah. trying we all to make, put themselves, <laughs> right. yeah, put themselves in, in, in a better position. But I think more transparency lends itself to better results. And the, the more clear people are about what's going on, where is crime? I mean, crime is happening all over the city, but there's certain types of crime that happen in some parts of the city. You know, if you if you're in a certain zip codes, or you might be involved, it might be more gun violence than than property thefts or crimes like that. So, how do you begin to use your resources to address the issues in the communities? Because every community doesn't need to be policed the same. Right. And so, you've got to you've got to be very granular in understanding the information, and then have people who are connected with the community to bring information to you. It's not a snitch mentality, but if we're trying to head off uh, uh, a drive by. To me, it's much better to get the information and say, hey, John, I know you're thinking about a drive-by. Before you think about that, let's figure out what the problem is. And a lot of this is a respect culture. You disrespected me. How often do we you disrespect Conflict resolution. Me. We just right. need, we yeah, need better conflict resolution. And we have to talk about that. But when you don't have a mayor who's culturally connected, whose son didn't play, play for the East Side Raiders, but yeah. also knew some West Side Cubs, who, who who hung out over in Denby, you know, but also had a relationship with people at Redford. If you don't understand those relationships, how the community works, 
it makes it very difficult for you to even address the issue. How do you talk to a young black man if you haven't raised one in your family? Mm. And a lot of things have changed subtly over over the years in the city. I remember one thing. I remember coming up and my father always had like a, a huge disdain when they changed the rule that city police officers didn't have to live yes. in Detroit anymore. This is where I was going to. And, right. and I, I remember growing up, there were two police officers on my block and I knew they were on the block because they drove their pr- patrol cars home every night. They were in the driveway. You know, yeah. we saw them leave out. And I've always had an opinion like the, you know, when I go out to other communities, you see police, they just patrolling. Yeah. And I go on to, to crimes, they just they just driving around, running plates, going through neighborhoods, and they're patrolling. But with so much happening here in Detroit, you know, so much gun violence, theft. It's responding. Often, yeah. Right. Res- they don't have a chance to patrol or even build those type of relationships with the community. When I, I worked out in Canton for a long time, mm-hmm. and we had a police officer. He sat over in the field and, you know, had a had a speed trap. But he would come into the office, introduce right. himself. You know, we, we knew who he was. Right. And, you know, in the city, we don't have, you know, with the, number one, with them not living there, that's just the presence is now gone, and with the responsibilities that they have, it's hard to sometimes build those relationships. It's hard. It's hard when you got to use GPS to figure out, you know, where Mac and B Week is, and we got to begin to change that. But we can't change the police force if we continue to demonize the, the policing as a profession. Mm-hmm. And part of what I've been telling folk all the time is that, look, you can't expect young people to go into this when every day we're telling them that they're horrible to do this guy. There this are there fact. are some cops that are that are good cops and trying to do the right thing. And if our young people that really want to transform the police department, then I say, hey, you know what? The best way to transform a department is to go inside and be the tip of the spear to bring about the cultural change, to bring about your perspective and how to do things differently. I think the other thing that I talk about on my platform is how we actually train our police officers. Part of what I've been advocating is that there needs to be a practicum approach to what they do. Simply going in, the, in an academy, you know, getting in shape, learning how to shoot a gun, learning how to ride a chicken, learning how to handcuff people, that's all great. It's got to be done. But they also need to understand the community that they live in, especially because we do have, we can't have residency because there's a state law issue. And I think there's some things we need to do in order to incentivize police officers to, to begin to live back in the city. But we also have to recruit our young people to be here. I got here. a plan. So, so part of what I'm talking about is we've got to, they got to go through a practicum. It's amazing that it takes you seven to eight years to be a surgeon to operate on somebody, but I can give you a gun in six weeks and you can kill somebody. And so part of my plan is they have to go through a practicum. They got to work in a mental health agency. They got to work in a youth advocacy role. They got to work as a social worker to understand various aspects of the people who live in the community are just like anybody else. They just have problems just like people in Berkeley, people in Royal Oak, or come people on. in Birmingham. Just like the Army, you can't, do, you can't actively be in a tour forever. You have a tour, then you sit down for a couple months. So if you are... When someone calls the police, they're in the worst situation they've ever been in. Ever been. Right. So every time you come anywhere, you're in a very high stress situation. You can't do that every single day. No. And if I take all the quote unquote bad calls. So every time I see um, a young man, he's upset or angry. I might start thinking everybody is like that exactly. because I never get a chance to to take that break. Right. That actually I think I can integrate that in my plan because when I talk about practicum, I think part of it should be. 
Um, it's a mental health break. Police officers are, are under tremendous mental do pressure. Do some desk work for every or every three months. Go do something else. Go work in the evidence. Do something mm -hmm. so you can learn that. So I do have a, a, a idea, right? This is the first time I sat down with somebody who can possibly uh, do something about okay. it, right? Because to Dane's point, we grew up where you, know, you, you had to live in the city. So what I think that could happen or that could work is if we do incentivize people who work for the, the fire department, um, uh, EMS, um, or the police department to work in the city, um, we would a give you X amount of dollars, um, on your home. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe that's from the land bank or whatever. Well, yeah, like, they got 80,000 properties. <laughs> I mean, like if you work at quick and they're giving you $20,000 off your loan, maybe we, right. because Dan Gilbert is so closely attached to the city. Maybe uh, we can, he's the ghost mayor. Maybe we can figure out something with him. Or if, if I had you, to talk about that off the mic. If you, if you are a, De a Detroit police officer and you purchase a home in the city, maybe you get X amount of discounts, right? right. Um, or towards your mortgage. Also, like what happens, what you need is food, mm -hmm. shelter, and home and, and, and child care. Right. Well, if you, you, if you live in the city and you're a police officer, EMS worker, fire department, and you get those services in the city where there's a discount. Right. That that company can f get that a tax credit because I'm giving twenty percent off for food purchased in the city. So that's now right. I have people moving back into the city. Now I'm spending money in the city. Like I think that's something that can work because since we can't make you do that because right. of the state law, but to incentivize people to it's come, a trickle down effect. Yeah. If, if you're if those people are in the city, the city inherently starts to become safer. Yes. If I know it's a police cruiser, whether he's on duty or off duty. Four down, houses down. Right. I'm not about to shoot this house up, right? Because dude may come out the house. Hey. There's an I know there's an abandoned house in my neighborhood, but there's a, like a police officer that lives like the next block over. Okay, and sometimes I just see the charger parked, right, in, in parked the, in the driveway, and okay. that's that's enough that's of a deterrent, deterrent right. to keep people away, right? Yeah, but you, you have to, you have to, we have to do a lot more things like that. Um, um, usually, in certain command structures, they do allow vehicles to go home. And if you live in the city, I have seen um, the chargers, you know, parked in neighborhoods. And I think that's a good idea because people need to know that they have help and assistance in their neighborhood, someone that they know and, and can connect with. Because at the end of the day, it's just all about building. we got to rebuild the trust in our community. And officers have to engage the people uh, in the communities where they live. I'll be honest, man, the the, the people don't have a lot of trust in um local, local city government because, I mean, it was uncovered that, hey, my bad, we overtaxed you $600 yeah, million dollars on, right. your, on your home. Uh, too late, can't do anything about it. Yeah, well, that was, that was a, that's a bunch of BS um, because there was no really commitment on the overtaxation was, was horrible. And what we find is that um, people are still being overtaxed. See, they act like the problem is over. And this is what this is a problem I have with the media. Ah, oh, we we fixed the overtax. No, you haven't fixed it. It still exists. The evidence is very clear that homes that are less than one hundred thousand dollars continue to actually be overassessed in houses that are higher than that. And so we've got to correct the imbalance. And we also have to give people their money back. We give people their money back in a manner that doesn't bankrupt the city. Every time the city wants to do a major project, they, they find money out, out up the wazoo. They found $100 million to give the Maddie Room. They gave $90 million to Tony Swire in the Chrysler Project. They give uh, other developers land and money to make things happen. And so we've got to do the same thing here. 
And so part of my plan and what I've been advocating is that people will be compensated for their loss. If you lost a house, uh, we need to find you a house and get you a house. Because there are a lot of houses. Here you go. Yeah, a lot of houses in a lot of neighborhoods. And I, because I ride through the city all day, every day. And you see a nice house in, in a good neighborhood that's overgrown that needs to be repurposed. Why are we not putting people in these homes? Why are we not taking control of these properties? Why are we not providing them with the resources and economics to do these things? The city has affordable housing money. They have dollars that are set aside to do things. They have these, quote, special programs, but the special programs aren't applying to the people who live here. When you talk about um, um, areas that have been redeveloped, I was over 12th and Claremont the other day. I rode up Taylor Street. I counted 15 white families on one block. And I asked them, I said, how you, why you move here? Man, I can buy a house like this in Gross Point. I could buy a five, six-bedroom brick house for $100,000, and I get the money to fix it up. And then I go to my friends who live in the neighborhood. I say, well, why haven't you fixed your house up? Because there's no money to help me fix my house up. That is not equitable for the people who live in the city. The people who live here need to get the money and the resources to help them stabilize and stay in their homes. I'm not anti-people moving in the city of Detroit by any stretch of the imagination. But when we're talking about resources and how they're allocated and who needs to get what benefits from the tax dollars that people in the city of Detroit have paid, we need to give them their money. We need to help them fix their house up. And if someone new wants to move in the neighborhood and there's some money that we can help them do that, then all the better for everybody because it strengthens the neighborhood. The question for those families that had children is what are they going to do when their kids are ready to go to school? Are they going to put them in a corner charter school in school? Are they going to put them in a local DPS school? We've got to correct the imbalance of education so that when their kids become school age, they put them in DPS schools because I'm pro DPS. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. I said it. So I also want to ask, so like you're not necessarily new to the, the mayor, the mayoral spot because as deputy mayor, uh, when Kwame left office, you stepped in as interim mayor. Is yeah. that correct? Well, what happened was when he, he when he got sick, I stepped in. And uh, when he got ousted out of office, I actually was running the water department. Okay. But a lot of the daily aspects of the job, you know, being deputy mayor, you're the number two guy. And so you really get to do all, all, all the heavy lifting, whether it's working on the budget, whether it's negotiating with council. Everything that it required to do the job as deputy mayor uh, is a preparation to become mayor. You just don't have the final uh, authority and this decision-making responsibility. But I think with with my overall experience, uh, with my maturity, with my understanding that this is a big deal. Uh, It's a big deal being mayor of the city of Detroit because you have 650,000 lives that you're responsible for, and the people in the city of Detroit are tired of failures of black leadership. Mm-hmm. I think that's one reason why we have a white mayor is because black folks were disappointed at the black leadership in this town. What I'm here to tell them is that I understand the importance of the job and the role and the responsibilities that it brings to the position and the ethics and the morality that you have to have in order to be effective in that job because you are, you you have the interest of the people who live in this city. Oftentimes people whose voices are not heard at all. You find so many people who feel like the process just isn't connected with them, that there's nothing you can do, which is why you end up in a situation where you have 100,000 people voting in the mayor's primary or mayor's race, but you got 250,000 people who vote in the presidential race, even though we got 425,000 registered voters in the city of Detroit. And we can, know, we can only get less than half of them to vote 
in the presidential race and the 10, 25% in the mayor's race. That's insane for someone who really more controls your life than the president of the United States. Mm. So I always thought like locally, um, for local elections, well, for all elections, I don't, I don't like the campaign dollars and stuff like that. If this process is so important to how the city runs, you know, on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m., candidate A got time on the radio. Candidate B has time on the radio because this is the process that we need to run the country. Yeah, it's a, it's, it turns into a money game. Like, I got more money, money than you, man. so. So I can I can be where you can't be. And, be and, and then that's the only ones that you know. I know we talked about this during the presidential election. When you get in the voting booth, yeah. there's 25 names on right. running for president, but you've only seen two or three because those are the only ones in the debates and on the news and that are always in your face. Well, you know, I'm dealing with a guy that has millions. Okay, mm-hmm. let's just be clear. Uh, he has his own money that he's raised through the various generous donations of the of the vendor class for the city. But he also has access to millions of dollars for the corporate community with whom he does their bidding. And so when you're running against a guy like that, you got to take every opportunity to appear on every podcast, every opportunity to go into a community, uh, every meeting, every conversation, hanging out at the Elks Lodge, going on the east side, hanging at Baker's. You go everywhere you have to go in order to get your message out because this is a this is a a, um, a campaign about making contact with people and restoring their faith and trust and leadership. I'm not. He's going to outspend me ten to one. Ain't no question about that. But he's not going to outwork me in the community. Mm. He's not going to outwork me with with reaching out and talking to as many people as possible with many different platforms. The great thing about the Internet, it's a great equalizer. You don't need to have millions of dollars to go viral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and word of mouth, connecting with other people, being able to present your ideas uh, in, in, a, in a thoughtful way, being questioned, uh, excellent questions today. I think allows people to understand and hear my passion of what I'm bringing to this table and why I'm so adamant that I have to win because we're talking about the future of people in this city to really be a part of it, not be lorded over because that's what's happening now, not having decisions made for them, but how do we engage in real community engagement and conversation with the people that can give you the ideas to help change the quality of life of what goes on in our city? And you know what you, you mentioned something when you talk about the disappointment of black leadership, when you look at some of the things that the current mayor has done, <laughs> they, Boy, they, they, they are hand in hand. They look very similar. <laughs> they are hand in hand. And what we, yeah. you know, tried to kind of oust, you know, previous, previous leadership for. I'll say this so it's attached to me. Like, isn't our current mayor about to marry the woman that his mistress, his that mistress, he got divorced for cheating with while he was in office? Absolutely. Like, what is what a scandal? He told the media to stand down. I remember that press conference, and I'm sitting there saying, "Wow, that's powerful." I tell you to stand down. You telling me that spending our money is not worthy to be questioned about? And I'm saying the level of hypocrisy. So that's why I'm saying the mind games of what's being played and how people are being manipulated on these facts is astonishing to me. But it's a a huge part of that is, like you said, you got a a lot of corporations in your pocket. And you talked about the ghost mayor of downtown Detroit. The ghost. They they hand in hand with one another. Right. And that's one thing that's that's troubling for me. I'm a lifelong West Side resident. I don't live in the best neighborhood, but it's not it's not going to hell. But 
when I look at other places that they that they deem important, that, yes. that, that they want to flourish, you know, downtown, Rosedale yeah. Park, North End, yeah. you know, Boston Edison District, they want those places to flourish. But the city is so much bigger than that. When I when I go through my neighborhood, we we need help. We need speed bumps, you know, yeah, on, on a lot of these side streets. You know, it's I have small children. It's nothing for me. You know, I'm working from home just because of the pandemic. Right. But it's nothing for me two, three in the afternoon to hear a charger oh, speeding yeah. up and down, speeding <laughs> up and down the block. I, I I would love to have a speed bump somewhere in my community instead of bike lanes everywhere. Like, give me a couple more of those. Yeah, well, we've got to we got to really begin to deal with the culture of speeding in the city of Detroit. And it's been allowed. To oh, it's just, lawless. And, and so when you have <laughs> when you have, yeah. you have like, they want to go clubs, viral for it. They have car clubs. And because uh, I've seen it, I was on uh, Connor and, and Warren one day. And the Crown Victoria Clown uh, Car Club, and there must have been sixty. I'm like, God, no, they still on the road. Sixty of them <laughs> rolling, had traffic stopped. Is it? Yeah, stop. Uh, okay, so we had to understand. Okay, look, there's zero tolerance for speeding through our neighborhoods because our children being killed. Yes, and so I have no, I have no tolerance for that. You cannot speed in our neighborhoods, and we have to. We have to enforce the laws as it relates to traffic in a manner that's not disrespectful, but you're speeding in a neighborhood, you got to be stopped. We also have to create venues for young men and women now to ride their cars fast if it means creating the Detroit Raceway. Why are we not talking about that? Let's talk about that. Let's get, because all these clubs have people that are leaders. And I met a lot of the guys, like from the bicycle club guys to the three. Put them somewhere, guy. charge this them. Is, this is where create you some can revenue go. stream. This is where you can go because if I catch you driving down, I'm taking green, his Lamborghini. I'm taking your car. You see, because I, I have to because you're not respecting the people who live here, and we and we're not having these kind of conversations because if you don't understand the culture, then it's hard to understand the guys. The, the Wrangler young ladies, they had an Instagram. Uh, I had an Instagram conversation with them. Wonderful young ladies. They all drive Wranglers. Now, they're not speeding through the city. I know the president. Yeah, yeah. yeah but you got you, you got some <laughs> other. It's all about speed. Yeah. And they got big engines, oversized. Really, <laughs> When you get a Hellcat, you know what it's for. You know you're speeding. Yeah. And so And so we got to begin to say, look. How do we all work together? Because you can't do donuts in the middle of the morning at 12 o'clock because we all trying to get up and yes. go to work the next day. Some of How us got jobs. Okay? Some, right. of us have jobs. Some, Some of we, us can't afford Hellcats to be. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what, like a $90,000 car. I mean, wow. Really? And it's a lot of them in the city. Eh? It's a lot of them in the city, man. You, <laughs> yeah, you, you man. Hear them. It's a lot of them. Creative financing. I get was, them off that lot. I was riding my bike one day. I was, on, I was riding Houston Whittier. And I'm riding, and it was, I usually ride early in the morning uh, before traffic really gets bad. And I hear, you know, you kind of hear the engine roll. <laughs> this guy must have been doing 150 miles an hour coming out Houston. I had to get on the sidewalk. I was like, man, I don't yeah, want man. this guy. The sidewalk not safe. Yeah. <laughs> the sidewalk is literally not safe. Because I keep seeing stuff online where they lose control and they end up on somebody's porch. I know, a porch, man. I mean, so... Like, <laughs> I'm in the house. No, no. Two two weeks two weeks ago, a guy skipped uh skipped the sidewalk, yeah. and and my neighbor's well, yeah, car boy. was in the driveway and hit the car in the driveway. There's no there's there's and another thing that bothers me. I was taking my daughter home from work 
these four wheelers and these mini bikes. Oh, yeah. No, I got a. I had a friend of mine personally got killed this summer. Oh. You know, because somebody somebody ran into him and hit him on the mini bike. But but on the flip side, like right. they can't commandeer the road either. Like it's got to is I I don't know Man, what these, the balance is. These four wheelers is uh I didn't mention this on the pod. This happened last summer. I didn't mention it on the on the pod because it was too uh. It was too soon, <laughs> right. but a, a a young man, you know, felt that it was his right to 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 go in my front yard and do like some 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 donuts, right, on my grass. Right. And, uh, I disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I disagree with that. I'm like, this is where I live. This is where I live. You know, right. I heard him coming down the block, but like when y'all got to the corner, you, this not that's this is not that's not it. Right. You know, what I'm saying you can't do this. They on the grass. Yeah. So you know. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, we had a conversation, you know, around the corner because I had to, I had to go find. Like, right. Well, where yeah. did? Right, right. <laughs> I looked at my ring camera like, no, I, I need to go. Have, I need to go find somebody <laughs> to have a conversation. Like, right. I think we got some things <laughs> misconstrued, you know. Well, we have to. We have to. You know, we as men, um, you know, we have to. I always be respectful with young mm-hmm. men because I know the respect thing is very big. Absolutely. But, you know, when I see you doing something wrong, I approach, I approach you in a respectful manner and say, hey, hey, young brother. Because, I mean, I'm old enough to be yeah. most of these guys' grandfather. Um, I say, hey, you know, why can't we do something different? You know, I know you, you're doing your thing. I ain't trying to tell you what to do. You know, you always got to qualify it. But right. it, would be, it would be better for everybody if you just kind of took it over here, over there. Me and Jay talk about that a lot of times too, because now I'm at an age I got a grown child. Right. So when I when I see young, like when I go to the store and it's young, you know, when I try and get in, excuse me, young yeah. man, because yes. I yes. I want that separation right. there because exactly. we yeah. I don't want you to think that we peers first of all. Right. You know, I want I want yeah I want to <laughs> I want to establish some type of respect because. We're not the same age. We're you know what I'm saying? I, I got a grown child in, right. in in the car. Exactly. And then you my know, baby's thirty, so I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. And then and then like the the respect factor because me and Jason we we both carry, mm-hmm. and I don't I I never I never want to have to use my weapon. Right. I, I keep it on me because I understand where I I live on Puritan and Schaefer. I okay. understand okay. where I'm at. Right. But you know, it's I have it to protect my family. Right. You know, to to protect myself. But I never leave out the house with the intention, or oh, I'm gonna shoot somebody at the store today. Right, right. And I just always want to establish some type of boundaries there. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, like you say, you, you, excuse me, young man. Yes. Um, you mind if I step through here? I'm trying to. I'm trying to get somewhere. I'm not trying to just respect you, but understand that I am. I'm an old guy. I'm, I've lived long uh, because I've avoided a lot of crazy mm-hmm. situations. I've been in a lot of crazy situations and avoided a lot of crazy situations. And so, how do we? How do we have a, a peace here that allows both of us to do what we need to do in order to um, to protect ourselves and, and go home at night? Because we always try to get home to our family. Absolutely. Pure and simple. All right. So last question, man, is um, is about infrastructure yes. um, in the city of Detroit um, and the shortcomings that have that we've been seeing uh, yes. consistently for years. Uh, there's a couple, but like mo- right now we're dealing with. Massive uh, Noah and, and yeah. his ark, you know. What I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, massive rain for the last feels like three months. Yes, um, and the city flooding Shit, so man. much that the entire freeways 
have cars that are underneath water. Yeah. The lodge was flooding this afternoon. Yes. It's, yeah. I mean, it, it's absolutely horrible. And it's not like it hasn't happened before because no. it happened in 2014. Right. I remember very vividly. 2014. I, I drove through a lake on Van Dyke. Right. 2016, you know? 2019, um, 2021. So they have, the, you know, from what I was told, you know, the system can only take three inches of water yeah. um, in a 24-hour period. And if it's more than that, kind of like, oh, well. Yeah. Um, well, that's 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 old. That's old school infrastructure um, approach. And part of what we what we need to be doing now is how do we create more green conservation water runoff districts throughout the entire city? Why are we not using our park system, for example, to divert rainwater, not sewer water, rainwater as it flows in the streets in order to put that in parks where it can self uh, regulate itself? We got to divert more water out the system. Part of the issue on the east side is when they, they did the Chrysler expansion project, they built a detention pond, which is a pond that holds water, stormwater when it rains, and then it's released into a system when it's dry. Because actually when the system, when there's a hot day, there actually is not a lot of flow in the sewer system, so you need to have water. And so part of my approach is that we got to create more green conservation districts but we also have to require more institutions to build detention ponds on their own property so that they can hold water on their site so it's not discharged into the system. Mm. You're talking about a whole green infrastructure approach to how we actually deal with what we do and how we manage our infrastructure, a way to create more jobs and training the skills and and things that we can do. You know, when you when you design your your uh, your intersections, you you need to have water runoff berms. You see. A lot more of that, especially in cities in the south where they have flash flooding, they create they create in their intersections or, or in their curbs, they create green infrastructure so that water is flowed, so it is stored more on the site versus being pushed into the system. We gotta do something differently. We also have to begin to upsize the size of, of our sewers in, in pertinent areas, especially on the east side, which is an older community, an older sewers. Get a lot of flood on, on the east side. And they built the Chrysler plant. They also expanded a new truck facility, and they put a new uh, Stellantis or Chrysler parking lot, which does not have water runoff facilities. All those millions of gallons of waters are being stored in the city. They also have to require that Macomb and Oakland County also build more detention ponds because the sewer and water that's flowing on the east side is flowing from Macomb County and Oakland County. And we've got to begin to reduce the flow of water during these, they call them 100-year events, but now they seem like they're more like every three-year events because, you know, global warming is an issue. But we have to begin to change how we address our infrastructure needs by requiring people to store more water on their site to take water out and then to use it when we have dry weather events. These are just some simple things that we can do to create employment for ourselves, create new jobs and training and horticulture and agriculture, people understanding how to maintain plants. There's just so many little things that we can do. Our economic development philosophy for the last 50 years has been based on the big project. We got to have a stadium. We got to have a plant. We got to have a big business. And I'm saying, I'm saying, forget yeah. all that. We, we Casinos. Let's work on the little things. We got 38,000 small businesses in Detroit. What if everyone of those businesses hired three people, that 160,000 people I talked about who've opted out of the workforce to put them back to be productive citizens, which means they're paying taxes, they're paying revenue to the city, they're helping the city grow and become stronger. We got to focus on the little things, on the little people 
The things that make the city great is taking care of the people who've been here through thick and thin, making sure that they understand that we are connected together. Together, we are stronger than we are divided. Absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, our studio, uh, we in Oak Park. I would love to for the studio to be oh, in the man. city of Detroit. Absolutely. You know I mean? There's so many. I mean, I was talking with some young spoken word artists the other day. They have this um, program. They're actually in Warren, Eight Mile and Van Dyke Carey County, just north of that. Mm-hmm. Old industrial building that's been converted into like an open warehouse. I'm saying, man, we got all these schools. We got all these buildings. Why are we not providing entrepreneurs who have businesses who want to do things? Why are we not allowing it to be placed in? in? It's just so many. When I talk about the little things that we can do, bringing your business back home, allowing you to convert a building, to create a studio, to allow for young people to come in and and see what you do, understanding that this is a whole industry that we can control ourselves, that it's all within our own power to do. That's what our young people are not hearing. That's what the people of the city are not hearing. That's what I'm telling folk. We can do this. Mm. We don't need nobody telling us what to do. And I mean, that's that's a dream of ours. You know, I, you know, the the studio has kind of kind of grew out of necessity, mm-hmm. and this is this is where we ended up at. But you know, I, I would love to you know have something in my neighborhood or not too far from my neighborhood that was number one that that we owned, right. and secondly that I knew was safe right. because that's. That's that's a huge part of it. With, with thousands of dollars in yeah. equipment, yeah. I don't need Ray Ray and his homies coming <laughs> in every other night. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's what's been so amazing about this journey is that I have had podcasts in people's living rooms, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a there is an industry in this city that people are creating their own opportunities in their space. From a guy who who bought a house next to his house. In an area, and he's got a whole studio podcast. I said, "Once you worried about your equipment?" He said, "What I did was I bring the young people in here and I show them what it is. I show them how they can have a training. I show them, I allow them to use my stuff so that they don't feel like it's it's a foreign to them. It's, it's I'm bringing the community in." He said, "There's a risk involved in that for, for, sure. for sure, but I'm ready to take that risk because I believe I that I be strengthen my community, yeah. yeah, in order to strengthen that. And so we just we we need to bring you home." Uh, there are a lot of buildings that, that I've, I've seen throughout the city that can be converted because you're talking about a single-purpose building that you have for yourself that you can bring young people in and train about this industry and, and do great things. I'm tired of paying the white man. I'll be yeah. perfectly yeah. <laughs> uh, That's how we ended but, up with right, our own studio. Right. But me and Jam, we're both huge on ownership right. because that's that's the only way we can really change something is by – you know, it, it being ours. Exactly. And, and I would love to own one of these pieces of commercial property somewhere in the city to make it make it ours. Right. So here's a question I've never heard anybody ask uh, any sort of politician okay. or anything like I'm that. A, I'm a public about servant. The, a, public a, servant. A, a public servant. <laughs> uh, yeah. The public servant. Um, that is a giant problem in the city. Mm-hmm. Stray dogs. Stray dogs. And maulings and, oh and things God. of that nature. Yes. Or just people who don't know how to control the this large animal and i was always thought like you know if the city just gave some i know a couple of different people who have dog training uh companies like 
take your dog down there, get him trained, and now we don't have to worry about your kid yeah. getting bit. Like it, it's not gonna take a long, a, a month process or something. Your dog can be trained, yeah. sponsored by the city because it's gonna. Like, come on, man, the city, like the people, need for their children to be safe. I see packs of stray dogs, yeah. and, and my 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 in laws. I uh, live in like the Grand River and Lassa right, area, Grand and I forget the name of the yes. of the, of the golf course, of the oh, golf course oh, up over Rogel? there. Is that Rogel? Yeah, Rogel. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's those gaps in the fences, and it's nothing for me to see. Yeah. You know, stray dogs because my older children went to Ludington. Okay, so it's nothing for me to see. You know, seven eight in the morning, a pack of stray yeah. dogs, and this this is a pathway where babies are going to school every yeah, day. It's, Man, it's we a, can this it can say like there's no bad dogs, there's bad owners, or uninformed owners. Right. You don't know what you have. Man, take this dog down to the city. We got all these random empty buildings. Man, it, it don't cost that much money to pay somebody <laughs> yearly to do dog classes. You know what I'm saying? It's, like it's 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 um, you know, it's sort of like. When they changed the law and said you could literally bring a child to a police station and turn it over without question, and we gotta have we gotta gotta have dog turnover situations here because people are just abandoning dogs because they just don't want to maintain them anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying it's much more humane to have have a service that's available to people, but it's always it's it's it's, it's a major issue, especially you know pit bull. Yes, pit bulls are a major issue uh, in this city. Uh, which is why, you know, council went to registration. But the people who are doing this, they're not thinking about registering nothing. They're not registering And so how do we, how, you know, again, it's... it's so a, I got nothing there shot. Exactly. And, and I'm a pit bull owner, right. but it's a lot about education. It's a lot of education. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. this this my third pit bull. So okay. I'm not I'm not new to it, but I also know, you know, what what the dog needs in order to thrive. Your I dogs need to be socialized right. with people and other animals. Because, right. like, one of the homies lost their dog because another dog... Yeah, got to him. Exactly. Like this, a lot of this stuff can be prevented. Right. Just wasn't literally training that after education. Right. You, education. You education. Yeah. So that's what we are. And listen, about. how can somebody help and donate right. to you? Okay. Thank you. So my website is anthonyadamsformayor.com. That's anthonyadams f o r mayor dot com. My email is aa4mayor, the number 4mayor at gmail.com. Um, my website is probably the best way to reach me because I answer, as you know, I answer all my emails. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a site that you can go on and if you'd like to donate. Uh, this, you know, this, is, this is very expensive uh, to do against a guy that has millions, but you know, I'm personally invested because it's my dream, and so I kind of make sure I finance it. Um, my headquarters is at 19512 Livernois, uh, Livernois in St. Martin, right across from uh, Noni's a Restaurant, mm. right down the street from Good Times Restaurant, which, you know, I love the lobster bites <laughs> if I need to be eating all that fried food. Um, and I'm always there. I mean, we're there on the street. Uh, I will come out to speak to your organization. No organization is too big or too small for me. I've spoken to one person. I'm speaking to 500 I will go where I need to go in order to let people hear me talk, hear my passion, and hear my commitment to the people in the city of Detroit. So we're all about winning. It's, it's winning time now, and I'm, I'm just looking forward to getting through this primary. And then it's a one-on-one race where we can really have a debate yes. about the issues. I tell people all the time, I could care less that he's a white guy. It's all about his policies to mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And we're going to keep it on a policy level. But if we need to get gangster, we will. All right. All right.
You seen the movie Fresh when Samuel Jackson like put him on the clock? Put him on the clock. Chew it. Put him on the stage. That's right. Come on, man. You know? So for final word for the people, why should people vote for you on August the 3rd, which is the primary? Um, Everybody, when election time, everybody hit me with the vote or die, vote or die. Where y'all at? Did y'all die? Yeah. August 3rd is the primary. Why should people vote for you? If you're looking for a person who is really committed and invested in our community, if you're looking for a person who understands your struggles, if you're looking for a person who's had struggles himself, I do not profess to be a perfect person. In fact, my imperfections make me a guy who you should support because I believe in this city. The experience, the knowledge, the know-how, uh, is is there. And I'm not being braggadocious. That's just a life that I've lived and understanding how to make this work. And I'm committed to this people of the city. I'm committed to transformational change, not just on the surface, but deep cultural uh, embedded ideas that we need to embed within our children that they can be great, that the greatness of Detroit rests in the people, not in the leadership, but the people who be here. I am the man who wants to work for you. I want to be your public servant. That's why I'm running. All right. Man, you got my support. Yeah, right. we appreciate it. We sw- we've swung an election before. Okay. We, we did. All right. Like in like in real life. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's uh, swing so this one. Yeah. In this school swing this okay. one. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So um, we appreciate you coming out thank with you. us. Thank you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure uh, meeting you, um, getting to talk a little bit about you and know your background and your history. Um you got the know how to do it. You got the heart to do it. And um, hopefully on August 3rd, everybody's going who's listening to my voice right now who can possibly vote. Get out there in the primaries, man, so we can see them on that stage and we can shoot it. Up. <laughs> All right. Then we can be at the ribbon cutting when you open your studio. Man, talk about it. Talk, talk about it. That's the wrong button. <laughs> wrong button. <laughs> yeah, talk about it. All right, well, we appreciate you. Absolutely. Right. Listen, man, uh, thank you guys for tuning in. 270. Yeah, 270. It's 270. 270 episodes in a row. I need to go play that three-way. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I'm all out of order. Go ahead. Do your thing, man. I don't have nothing because okay. this, this, this was the episode. This is different, man. Yeah, when this you, was the episode. Uh, when you see the blue and the black, you know you're at Shop Talk Podcast Studio. Book some time. I'm not saying we're the Rockefeller Podcast, but we are Jay and Dane. Hell, yeah. Peace.